into Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Another benefit of being in a small church is that when the pastor forgets his drink, he can just walk down and grab it, and it won't be awkward at all. It will not be awkward at all. All right. Every month, I receive an update from Caleb. Caleb was a member of a church where me and my wife used to worship, and Caleb is going blind. Every month he sends out an email update to let his friends, family, and fellow church members know about what's going on with his vision. Every email is full of hope that the doctors can slow down the deterioration of his vision. But the reality is that Caleb will likely go fully blind within the next five to ten years. It's almost certain. Did you know that there are several kinds of blindness? including Caleb's. It's a slow deterioration of the vision. We tend to think of blindness, and excuse the terrible pun here, as a black and white sort of thing. But the reality is that blindness is not that black and white. Sometimes humans are born blind. Other times they go blind due to an infection in early childhood or even later in life. Sometimes people have trauma incidents. A jarring concussion of sorts leads to a loss of vision. Think about a boxer who loses vision in his left eye. Sometimes cataracts lead to blindness, although not nearly as much as they used to thanks to modern surgical techniques, but used to be that if you had cataracts, you could almost guarantee that you were going to be functionally blind by the time you hit your 50s. And there are other kinds of blindness. There's color blindness there's what I now know to be more true the older I get, the phenomena of night blindness. I guess my grandmother wasn't a hypochondriac after all. But there's more. You see, God's word says that there's another more pervasive kind of blindness, a more severe kind of blindness, and that's spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness is a condition of the heart, not the eyes yet it blinds us just the same, and in perhaps more profound ways. And it gets worse than that. The Bible tells us that every single human being, apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, is spiritually blind. Paul talks about it like this. In their case, the lowercase g God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. Can a lost person see the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ? No, they cannot, because they have been blinded. They are unable to. That means that a flash grenade of the glory of God could explode an inch away from our faces. And apart from the Holy Spirit giving us the ability to see, not a single ray of light would permeate our vision. 
And we know this to be true on some level, even if we haven't worked out our theological bearings. Because when we pray for people, we pray things like, God, open their eyes to the truth. Give them the ability to see, Father. Help them to recognize their lost state and their great need for you. What we're saying is, they're blind. And don't let them be blind anymore. Help them to see. But you should know that Paul didn't invent this idea of blindness. It's pervasive throughout Scripture. When he talks about blindness, all he's doing is tapping into the wealth of scriptural knowledge that he has as a good student of the Bible. It's prominent from the Old Testament all the way up to the time of Jesus. The account that we're going to read today, all of the accounts we're going to read today, in one way or another, deal with blindness. Today we're going to see four different kinds of blindness. So note-takers, at arms. Four different kinds of blindness. The first kind is the willfully blind. The willfully blind. The second kind of blindness we're going to see is the blindness of ignorance. The third kind of blindness that we're going to see is physical blindness. And the fourth kind of blindness that we're going to see is partially blind. So if you've got your Bibles open to Mark chapter 8, Join me starting in verse 11 as we read God's word and take this trek through these accounts. Chapter 8, verses 11 through 13. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. So Jesus has just wrapped up his tour through the land of the Gentiles. He's just fed the 4,000, a miraculous event. Gossip is going on. Rumors are flying. Word is spreading. And now the Pharisees are back. But this time, they're not accusing Jesus. He's possessed by the devil. That's where he gets his powers. And they're not trying to trick Jesus. Should you pay taxes? Should you not pay taxes? What's the deal? This time, they're accusing Jesus. No, excuse me. This time, they're here to test Jesus. In the book of John, Jesus tells the unbelieving Jews that when they reject Jesus, they're acting like their father, Satan. Well, I think in this first account, we see the Pharisees doing the same sort of thing. They're acting like their father, Satan. Do you remember the story of the temptation of Christ? In the book of Mark, it was very abbreviated, right? Mark is very fast-paced, boom, 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 not a lot of details. But we kind of dug a little bit into Matthew, and we saw that one of the things that Satan did with Jesus is he said, Hey, are you really the Messiah? Are you really the Son of God? If you are who you say you are, then you'll do this. And that's what we see the Pharisees doing today. The Pharisees are saying, hey, we'll believe you, Jesus. If you are who you say you are, though, do a miracle for us. Prove it. Prove that you are who you say you are. And just like Satan, Jesus gives no sign to the Pharisees. He says, truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. 
But before we look at the reason why Jesus does not give a sign to the Pharisees, we should figure out why the Pharisees are asking for a sign in the first place. I think there's a couple reasons. One is they probably don't believe that he can do it, so they're putting him on the spot. But there's probably another layer. Maybe they think, you know what, all right, I'll believe you if you can prove it. If you can prove it with a sign. Show me something miraculous. Give me a good reason to believe this. Show me right here in front of my eyes. But we know that that's not really the way that it works, is it? You see, Jesus has already done undeniable miracles. The guy was a leper. He's not a leper. There was a withered hand, no more withered hand. Demoniac, no longer a demoniac. And the Pharisees do not believe. As we continue to study the book of Mark, you're going to see that Jesus is going to keep doing miracles, undeniable miracles. And you know what the Pharisees are going to do? They're going to reject him all the same. What these Pharisees want is proof. We'll believe who you are, you say you are, if you can prove it. But you and I both know how hard it is to prove something to someone that already has their mind made up. Right? This is why political discussions are so disastrous. It's not because we can't sit down and reason together. It's because you can't prove something to someone who already has their mind made up. Going back to the book of John for a moment, we see something there from the words of Jesus himself that tells us the reason why the Pharisees wouldn't believe Jesus even if he gave them a sign. It's from chapter 7, verse 17, and he says this. If anyone's will is to do the will of God, okay, so let's make sure we understand this. If your will, your desire, the thing that your heart wants is the same thing that God wants. If your will is lined up with God's will, if you want to do what God wants you to do, says Jesus, if, if such a person exists, he will know whether the teaching, that is my teaching, Jesus' teaching, is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. How do you know whether or not Jesus is speaking on his own as just a kind of wild prophet who claims to be from God? Or is actually from God himself? Well, it seems here that Jesus is saying it's not an intellectual issue. It's not like the Pharisees are sitting there objectively saying, okay, give me the evidence. Okay, I observe the evidence. Now I come to this logical conclusion. Jesus says that the Pharisees don't believe because their will is out of alignment. Their will is not to do the will of God. It's to do the will of Satan. And therefore, no matter what Jesus does, their will is going to prevent them from interpreting the data rightly. Their heart is hard. Jesus could do 10,000 signs and wonders for these people, and they would find a way, one after another, to just reason them away, all the way to hell. And you know what that's like. If you've experienced that maybe with other people, as you try to point them to Christ and they find one way or another to get around the truth that's staring them right in the face? You've probably experienced that in your own life as you've been confronted by your own sin. And you try to find some way or another to reason around your sin so that you can stay in your sin and your complacency. I know I shouldn't cheat on my taxes, but 
10,000 different reasons to get around it. I know I shouldn't be sleeping with this person before I'm married, but I'm going to find some way to reason around it. And that's why this section is called the willfully blind. The Pharisees are blind, and their blindness is because they are bound by their will. Now, the really interesting question is this. Why doesn't Jesus give them a sign? I mean, why doesn't he at least try? Go for it, you know? One off wouldn't hurt. I think we've already seen one answer. A sign wouldn't do them any good. But I think there's more. I think there are three other reasons why Jesus doesn't give them a sign. The first is this. Jesus, and this is important to remember, does not use miracles to elicit Jesus does not use miracles to elicit faith. As we read the Gospels again and again and again, we see Jesus doing signs and wonders for those who either already have faith or for those whose faith is on the verge of crumbling. So think the disciples in the boat, the storm's raging. Jesus goes out there and calms the water to save them. A miracle that tries to elicit faith is magic. And Jesus is not a magician. Magic is, this is impossible. We all know this is impossible. This is not how the world works. But I'm going to use my powers, and I'm going to do this impossible thing. And you're going to see me do this impossible thing, and then you're going to believe that I am who I say I am. That I have the powers that I claim to have. That's magic. And that's not what Jesus does. Rather, what you see in the Gospels is people already expressing faith in Christ's ability to do anything and everything. And Jesus responds in kind with a miracle. I believe in you, Jesus. I believe you can do it. You can heal my daughter. She's sick, but I believe you can heal her. And Jesus responds in kind. Another reason, and this is perhaps the most important reason why Jesus does not do a little miraculous song and dance whenever the Pharisees want is this. Faith that depends on proof is not faith. Faith that depends on proof is not faith at all. Did you know that you can't prove that God exists? Did you know that? I mean, you can't prove it. You can't prove that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. You cannot 100% objectively, verifiably prove that. Now, that does not mean that there's not a tremendous amount of evidence that should lead us to believe in God. That doesn't mean that there's not a tremendous amount of evidence that should lead us to believe that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. As a matter of fact, I think there's so much evidence for the existence of God and for the resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ, that I think it is the height of folly, ignorance, and arrogance to reject such evidence, and it will lead to your eternal demise. But you can't prove them. And yet we believe. We lay hold of these truths by faith. God has revealed himself, and we lay hold of him by faith. You know, proof is overrated. Philosophers sit around tables with all of their education and all of the initials after their name and all the time spent 
pontificating with pipes in their mouths and in fancy rooms with many leather-bound books that smells of oak and mahogany. And they can't even prove that you're not just a figment of someone else's imagination. They can't even prove that you're not just a brain in a jar somewhere. Even Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am. Even philosophers now are finding ways to challenge that. You can't even prove that you know that you exist. Proof is overrated. We don't live our lives demanding proof for every last thing that we do. I know that gravity is going to hold me down tomorrow even though I can't prove it. I have good reason to believe it. I can't prove that the seatbelt is going to keep me from being wildly injured in a car, but hopefully most of the time I'm putting it on as I drive. I have good reason to believe that a seatbelt will save me. And so I trust in those good reasons and I buckle up. Again, most of the time. With patience is help more often than ever. You see, Christians walk by faith. That's what we do. Faith doesn't wait for absolute truth before it believes. An unconverted person thinks like this. Seeing is believing. But a Christian knows that believing is seeing. The Pharisees don't believe because they can't see. Or is it the other way around? The final reason why I think that Jesus doesn't perform a miracle for the Pharisees is because a miracle is no proof that someone is from God. Here's a reading from a couple thousand years before Jesus from the book of Deuteronomy. It says this, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, so a, a miraculous deed, and the sign or wonder tells, excuse me, and the sign or wonder tells that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which we have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. So it's saying there's a person who can do a sign, who can do a wonder that may try to lead you away from God. Well, is someone who is from God going to try to lead you away from God? Absolutely not. And yet here we have a category for someone who can do a miracle and yet who can try to lead you away from God. More than that, in chapter 13 of Mark, later on in Jesus' ministry, he says that false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray. So there will be people who do things, perform signs, perform wonders, and their purpose is not to bring us back to God, to get us to heaven where they're from, it's to lead us away from God and to get us towards hell where they're headed. So even if Jesus did perform a sign, that does not mean that he is necessarily from God. The Pharisees are blind in that no matter what they see, they won't see it rightly. If Jesus doesn't perf perform a sign, they're going to see it one way and reject him. If Jesus does perform a sign, they might see it one way and they could still be seeing wrong. Think about it like this. Imagine that there's a blind man. and He says, I want proof. I want proof that you are who you say you are. Do a miracle for me. And imagine that Jesus says yes. And so Jesus grabs the wine or the water and he turns it into wine. He asks the blind man, 
do you believe? And the blind man goes, no, I didn't see anything. Okay, he grabs a guy with a withered hand, you know, he comes up, heals him. The guy's hand is perfect. He goes, do you believe? He goes, no, I didn't see anything. Well, finally, you realize that no matter what you do, the blind man won't believe because he can't see what's, what's happening in front of him. But unlike this scenario, the Pharisees aren't a blind person who's just kind of naturally blind. The Pharisees are blind in that they are standing before Jesus, willfully shutting their eyes to him. Go ahead, Jesus. Do a miracle. Show us who you are. And their eyes are shut so tight that it can block out the sun. The only miracle that will allow the Pharisees to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, is if Jesus does the miracle of opening the eyes of their heart. And make no mistake, friends, every time Jesus opens the eyes of someone's heart, a miracle has taken place. This room is full of the evidence of miracles. If you're here and you're a Christian, God has opened up your eyes. He has given you vision. He's allowed you to see him rightly. A miracle has taken place. Do you want to see evidence of signs and wonders from Jesus? Look at your saved neighbor to your left and to your right. There is the sign and wonder you should be seeking. Keep this principle in mind as you engage with unbelievers. Hey, apologetics, it's great. Defend the faith, you know, argue for the veracity of the Bible. Look at the evidences for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's all fine and good. But remember, you may be standing there doing your song and dance for a blind man who doesn't want to see your evidence, no matter how much they say they, they want to see your evidence. So defend the faith, but just remember, a blind person can't see the facts to interpret them in the first place. You might even consider asking the person you're evangelizing something like this. What would it take for you to believe the gospel? I mean, what would it take for you to believe that Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life, died for your sins, and then was resurrected and ascended into heaven and he's coming back to judge the world? What would it take for you to believe that? Many of them would say, well, it would be nothing short of God himself coming down to me and telling me. Well, friends, he already did that. And because of our blindness, we killed him when he came. The second kind of blindness that we see today is the blindness of ignorance. One of the things that I've really enjoyed about the Gospel of Mark is that you see this compare and contrast between the disciples and the Pharisees, you know? Both are blind. Both have hard hearts. The difference between the two is that Jesus is, by his sovereign mercy, calling the disciples closer and closer and deeper and deeper into communion with himself. The disciples are no less blind than the Pharisees, but they're blind in a different way. They're blind due to ignorance. So let's look at verses 14 through 21. Now they had forgotten to bring bread... Now remember, they had just gotten in the boat. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact 
that they had no bread. And Jesus was aware of this, and he said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? One of the things, excuse me, as the, the disciples got into the boat with Jesus, he begins to teach them. His lesson is simple. Beware of the leaven. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And leaven is just kind of like this one word parable, right? Leaven is meant to talk to you about this imperceptible yet pervasive influence of something, right? So you're making bread, you have a lump of dough, you put a, just a pinch of leaven in there, just boop. And in a couple of hours after being covered up in a warm, moist place, that leaven has permeated every last part of that lump of dough. It's this unseen yet totally pervasive influence. And Jesus here is saying, watch out for the pervasive influence of the Pharisees and of Herod. And these are basically two of the most powerful influences of the day. And they're influential in different ways, right? The influence of Herod is the influence of decadence and sin and carnality and political strength and all these other things. And the influence of the Pharisees is the influence of ungodly righteousness. That is, self-righteousness. A wrong approach to God, a wrong approach to religion. In these two warnings, you almost see the story of the prodigal son. The older son who is proddy and uh, proud and haughty and who stays back behind and rebels against the father by staying in the home with the father. And then you have the younger son who goes off and does it by living in outright debauchery. The Pharisees and Herod. As the disciples hear this teaching, almost as a caricature of themselves, they almost immediately misunderstand it. They go, Levin? Oh man, we don't have any bread. We don't have enough bread. We only... Who forgot the bread? And they start arguing about this literal bread. And they just, they're just so ignorant. Jesus is obviously talking to them metaphorically. But they are totally oblivious. His response to them is telling. He asks them a rhetorical question. He says, having eyes, do you not see? And what's the great irony of Jesus' response here? is that they didn't understand his first metaphor, and so he rebukes them with another metaphor. I don't know if they're going to get that one either, Jesus. In the answer to this rhetorical question, do you have eyes to see, it's obvious. No, they don't have eyes to see. They just show that they don't. And Jesus is trying to get them to see it, but how can a blind man see that he doesn't have eyes to see? It seems like they want to see. It seems like they want to understand, like they want to please their master. But they fail over and over again. You should know that the same kind of blind allegiance to Jesus is going on today. People who seem to have some sense of fear of God. Some people who have some at least verbally expressed desire to obey Jesus. Who nevertheless just, just 
blind and they're going about it the wrong way, trying to work their way to heaven or go to church enough to go to heaven, any other number of ways. How many Christians growing up in the Bible Belt or in some religious home have gone through this very experience? They grew up in a home where they thought that they were pursuing Christ. They thought that they were pleasing their master, only to come later to realize that they had a fundamental misunderstanding of God and how to go about approaching God. The disciples have ears, but they don't hear. They look, but they don't see. They have brains, but they can't remember. And Mark ends this account without offering any resolution. Jesus asked the disciples some questions about leftover bread and feeding the 5,000 and the 4,000. Last week we talked a lot about the disciples' forgetfulness. And here Jesus is just reminding them by asking them questions. Hey, when I fed the 5,000, how much was left? When I fed the 4,000, how much was left? Then he says, don't you understand? But we don't see an answer. But we know that the answer is no. The third kind of blindness that we see today is physical blindness. As Jesus re-enters Bethsaida, another man is brought to him by a group. Right? This is a pretty common theme we're seeing. A group of people bring a sick person or come to talk to Jesus about a sick person. And like the deaf man that Jesus healed in chapter 7, Jesus uses spit to heal. And also like the deaf man in chapter 7, Jesus doesn't do this in private. He pulls the blind man away from the crowd. Let's read it together, starting in verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Maybe the most obvious question that you haven't even considered yet, and then you'll realize it once I say it, you'll say, like, oh yeah, that is the most obvious question, is how does this blind man know what trees look like? Well, I think the answer to that is probably simpler than we might imagine. The man was probably not born blind. He probably became blind maybe young in life or later in life. But either way, he knew what trees looked like because he wasn't always blind. But another question that we find ourselves asking is this. Why not just heal the blind man at once? Why does Jesus seem to kind of have two stages in this healing? I mean, this is Jesus. This is, touch the hem of his garment with faith, boom, you're healed. This is, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is the, the agent of creation. All things are to him and through him and by him. He's already done things that are much more miraculous than healing a blind man. He's already brought a little girl who was dead back to life. So why does it seem like there's a, a hiccup in this healing? If you're asking yourself that question, I think it makes sense. I think the answer to that is that he does it on purpose. 
I don't think that Jesus misses the first time and then recharges and then comes back up and really knocks it out of the park the second time. I think Jesus is being very intentional here. So the question is why? Why intentionally heal this man in two phases? Well, I think this healing is meant to be a picture of what it looks like to come to see Jesus. This healing is a picture of what it looks like when we come to see Jesus. More often than not, our perception of Jesus is just like this man's vision once he has his sight restored. We see, but we don't see clearly, right? We don't see perfectly, but then Jesus continues to work in our lives. Through the word, whether it's preached or read or we read it on our own, through the church, through his Holy Spirit, Jesus uses these means to kind of clarify our vision, to help us see him more rightly. I've shared with you, some of you before, about how I read a book that just totally transformed the way that I understood Jesus. Looking back now, it wasn't even that good of a book, but it was right what I needed at the time to help me see Jesus more rightly. Maybe you've gone through that same kind of thing. You know, Maybe you thought that Jesus was like, a flower-picking hippie who only cared about, you know, love, man. He didn't really demand anything of you. He wasn't the Lord of your life. He didn't require that you be obedient to him and that you submit to him. Or maybe you grew up in some crazy, legalistic, cultic church where women could only wear you know, measurements with the hands and it was do this and don't do that and do this and don't do that. And, you know, Jesus was a taskmaster. He was a God who was concerned about whether you were breaking the right rules and keeping the right rules. It wasn't until later in life that you came to see the beauty of the gospel of grace that says, yes, there are do's and there are don'ts, but that's only because Jesus has already done. Maybe, maybe you really had no idea about who Jesus was. You just knew that he saved you. And then over time, he began to grow the knowledge of himself in you. I think in some sense, that's all of our experience. Maybe even today, you're only seeing Christ and therefore all of your life in a blur. And when you fail to see God rightly, you should know that it affects all the other fields of vision in your life. When you fail to see God rightly, you fail to see yourself rightly. When your understanding of God is blind or just blurry, you fail to understand your neighbor rightly. You just don't see anything in life rightly until you come to see God rightly. Maybe in your life right now you see the light, but it's only hazy. You see figures, but they're only figures and distorted at that. But why do you think that is? This phenomenon is seen most clearly in the life of the disciples. Peter is one big demonstration of this principle, his whole life and ministry. Peter is blind, but then he sees, but then over and over again it's clear that his seeing is cloudy. His vision is distorted. He sees what he knows to be humans, but they look like trees. He, doesn't, he just doesn't see them rightly. The Lord continues to work in Peter's life as he uses him in ministry. At one point, he comes down and gives Peter a vision so that he can see rightly. At another time, 
God uses the Apostle Paul to rebuke Peter to his face. Why? In order to help him see rightly. To help him see that he was acting in a way that was out of line with the gospel. What is God using in your life to help you see rightly? Sometimes God uses good, easy things like a vision and fantastic. I, I, I want to be slow to say that. I don't, I don't, you know, if you come up to me talking to me about a vision after this, it's going to be a long conversation. But sometimes he uses things like books, experiences in our lives. But the most ordinary means that God uses to change our vision is his spirit using his word in the life of his church. That is the main way that our vision becomes more clear. And it doesn't always feel good. Sometimes, like Peter, we have to be rebuked to our faces by a brother like Paul. But what's more important, feeling good or seeing Jesus more rightly? Tonight at the members meeting, I'm going to open us up with a talk on how to receive rebuke and exhortation. I'd encourage you to be here. If you're a member, you should be here. But if you want to come hear that talk, I'd encourage you to be here. Because it's one of the main ways that God helps to clarify our vision. And Peter is the main character that we come to in the next portion of our text for today. Where we talk about the partially blind. Let's read it, verses 27 through 30. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. I read that you are the Christ line kind of bold, kind of assertive. That's kind of how Peter is, right? It's everything. He's just like, yeah, even if he's totally wrong. I could imagine myself being in that situation going, The Christ? Question mark? With my voice? As Jesus and his band of misfit disciples continue to travel, Jesus asks them this question. Who do people say that I am? In asking this question, Jesus is leading his disciples down a path. He's getting them to see that the world does not properly understand him. The world does not see him as they ought to see him. They're still blind. And their answer proves it. Who do people say that I am? Uh, some people say John the Baptist. Other people say Elijah. Some people this prophet. Other people that prophet. The world thinks plenty of good things about Jesus. Plenty of honorable things about Jesus. But they don't think accurate things about Jesus. Friends, that is still true today. From our Islamic neighbors who view Jesus as merely a prophet, the second greatest prophet... They tell us that they honor Jesus, but we know that their honor isn't sufficient because it's inaccurate. The pastor down the street who will tell you that Jesus is okay with your sin has an honorable view of Jesus, but an inaccurate view of Jesus. 
the legalistic church down the street that tells you that Jesus is going to send you to hell because you didn't pray your prayers last night has an honorable view of Jesus, but an inaccurate view of Jesus. But then Jesus asks the disciples, he says, okay, that's what the world thinks, but who do you, who do you, you, you've been with me, you've seen it, we've been together now, what do you think of me, who do you think that I am? Which is just another way of Jesus asking, do you see me now? Can you, can you see me, or are you blind? The question who do you say that I am, is like the question, how many fingers am I holding up? It's meant to test your vision. And here, for what seems like the first time in the Gospel of Mark, cue the cannons, let the confetti drop from the ceilings, balloons, prizes for everyone, prize for you, prize for you, prize for you. Peter gets it right. This is a momentous occasion. Because he is dumb, and he's been getting it wrong the whole way through. He says, you are the Christ. You're the long-awaited Savior of your people. It seems like Peter is no longer blind. In some sense, now he can see the reality of who Jesus Christ is. In Matthew's account of the same incident, we get a little bit more detail. Matthew records Jesus saying, like, almost immediately, right after Peter gives him the right answer, he says, but flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. My Father in heaven did. It's like Jesus knows. It's not like. Jesus knows Peter's sinful tendency to boast in himself and to feel like, I got the right answer, all glory to me. And P Jesus just, he kills that nerve. He nips it right in the bud, and he says, yeah, you got it right, but just don't even allow yourself to celebrate because you should know that the only reason you got this right answer is because my Father gave you the right answer. Whatever vision Peter may have here, it's a vision that God has given him. God has touched the eyes of Peter's heart and opened them from the blindness that he experienced towards Christ, his inability to see and rightly recognize Jesus. How do you see Christ? How do you see Christ? So many pastors get so bogged down in what's going on outside of the world of their local church. I'm not going to have to give an account for people outside of this local church. I'm going to have to give account for you before the Lord. So I want to know, how do you see Christ? The Gospel of Mark is one long illustration of how people can think that they see Christ, but be completely blind. Christ can be staring them dead in the face, and they can just be blind to his existence. I think that even with as small of a church as we are, that's probably true of some people who are sitting here today. If you think that this might even be a slight possibility of being true, don't wait. Don't just assume that you're okay. Talk to someone. Grab me or one of the elders or just anyone in the pew next to you and just talk to us. One of the main ways that God gives us to help us check our vision is our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
So often our vision becomes gummed up and God uses our brothers and sisters in Christ to help us see rightly or to just know whether or not we see it all. Now, this section discussing Peter's blindness, I've titled Partially Blind. But I just got through saying that it seems like Peter's now able to see Christ, right? He recognizes him as the Messiah. And then on top of that, Jesus affirms Peter's confession. So I'm saying that Jesus can now see Christ rightly, and then Jesus is also saying that. He's saying, yeah, you got it right, man, and congratulations, God is the one who gave you the ability to see me. So where am I getting this partially blind from? Well, I'd encourage you to come back next week to hear the answer to that question. Let's pray. Father God, you are the worker of miracles. And the miracle that you work day in and day out today in the life of your church that is faithful to preach and teach and live out the gospel is the miracle of conversion. So we pray now that your Holy Spirit would be at work in the life of this church to ensure the conversion of all of our members as well as to empower us to be faithful, to go out and preach the gospel that we might see more conversions from our faithfulness. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Learn and then repeat. It's totally different.